0: Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk.
1: Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Uh, I add my voice of welcome to you. I'm glad you're here, whether you're in this room or you're online online. Watching it, watching us live, or you're joining in uh, later on this week or later on this month on on YouTube. We're just so uh, glad that you're with us during this season. So, Dax and I are fishermen. We're fishermen, and I brought some of our things because what we'll do specifically when it starts getting a little warmer and all the way up through the summer months and even into the early fall, uh, you know, we'll we'll be messing around, fiddling around in our In our front yard or in our garage, and Dax will want to to look at our fishing equipment, you know. And so I first start out safe, and I have his his uh, box that I got. And I learned a very I learned a very valuable lesson. This will pay big dividends if you've never done this. If you think you can uh, go to Bass Pro or any fishing store uh, that you want to, and you think you're going to come out cheaper by telling your son, "Hey, whatever, if you want some fishing lures." They're on me. If you think you're going to come out cheaper than if you take them to a toy store and say, whatever you want in this toy store, uh, you can get, let me tell you, fishing lures are expensive, okay? And so I made the mistake once, say, Dax, whatever fishing lure you want, I'm getting it. And then he just knows to gravitate to like a $25 deep sea, uh, you know, big big fishing lure, you know? I'm like, ooh, these things are expensive. So Dax has his, and they're the ones here that they don't have any hooks, and we've learned he likes bigger rather than smaller lures, so he tends to gravitate towards the bigger ones when we have chances to, uh, to pick, purchase lures. Here's a spoonbill deal that we cut the, cut the hooks off of, treble hooks. So he'll look through those, but you know what? Those only satisfy for so long because there's no hooks in there. There's no knives. There's nothing sharp in his box. And so we ultimately, he talks me into going into my box, right? Because that's where all the treble hooks are. And that's where all the cool the cool things are, the needle nose pliers and the things that, that can cause all sorts of mayhem. Matter of fact, I have some really neat lures that, that you know, I have these lures. These I think I've purchased these lures. I can tell you they have never been in the water. And there's a whole I have Oh, I have just mounds of these lures. I bought these, I believe, back when I had my knee issue and I was buying everything on TV that I found because I just had to, I could not live without, you know, this thing. And, And what I was told were these, these, I mean, oh, secret the secret to catching fish, because the way they're segmented, when you take them through the water, it will, uh, it will, it will mimic a injured fish, a wounded fish, and so fish just gravitate towards wounded fish. As a matter of fact, it has a weight, and I can't find it in here, but it has a weight where the eyes look red because there's something about. I guess fish know when they see a red-eyed fish that like they need like I guess visine. That goes to you, Dana, because she'd say no one needs visine ever, ever. <laughs> Visine's a terrible thing because it is terrible. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's your optometry plug there too, okay? So I'm told that, that, that or at least this thing said on, on tape that, that red-eyed fish are sick, and so, so I, guess, I guess other fish have great eyesight and they can see red-eyed fish. And, and so this thing's supposed to catch them. Now, I don't know because I've never fished. We've never, never taken them out, but I bought them. I bought him for that day that we would go fishing, and and uh, and then you know finally we do that, and then Dax has now now he has caught fish with his papa, big fish too. I can show a picture of a bass would make anyone proud that he hauled in with an adult pole, but he has a kid's pole here, and this was for training, right? Because it's a a foam fish that we throw out in the yard, and this is a. Foam treble hook. Actually, not a treble hook. It's four. It's like an anchor, right? And so you throw it out there, and see. It's even got light, you know, just to entertain everyone there. And you reel it in. You catch. You try to catch the. You try to catch the fish. Now, now I, I ask you after after and this this whole process, Dax and I. This can be forty five minutes here. Forty five minutes. I mean, he will he will take these fish out, these lures, and he'll sort them by color. He'll sort them by size. I and mean, he put has them in his in his in his piles or in his rows, and then we'll put them back up, and then we work over here. And then, This could be a 45-minute process. Now, I ask you the question, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, after we've done catch, we've caught you know, 10 or 15 of these guys in our front yard, have we fished? Have we, have we fished after having all this experience? Have we gone out fishing? What do you think? Thank you. You know what? It's not a hard question. The first hour, I'm going to say the first hour were more philosophical because like several people were like, yes, you have. And I'm like, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. I don't know what you're thinking, but no, we have not gone out fishing. Now, there was this time where we finally, and we did this, and then we were, I was like, golly, Dax, it's Saturday. I was like, we're going to go out and go fishing. We're going to go, well, don't really have a good place. Don't have a good stock pond or somewhere in a good place. We don't have a boat, so we obviously aren't going to the lakes or anything like that, so we just go to Springfield Lake. You know, enough said about that. And we fished for about 20, 25 minutes and not a bite, nothing, and Dax finally, he just, oh, uh, dagger to the heart because he's like, "Dad, Daddy, why is it that when I... When I go fishing with Papa, which is his grandfather, Dana's dad, when I go fishing with Papa, we catch fish, and when I go fishing with you, we don't do anything. And I was like, put your stuff up, we're going to McDonald's. You know, and, and so that that was and, and, and you could make the argument even at that experience. After that after that, have we fished? Well, we, we were at a we were at a lake, weren't we? We did put we did put a line in the water. How serious we were about fishing is another story. Uh, my my Point is this, and we have all the stuff. I have all the equipment, right? I have all the, and I get once a year. I get a fishing license that the state of Missouri tells me I have the right to go to any 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 water, any place of water, any 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 park, any river, public lake. And by golly, I go fishing. But does that? Am I truly fishing? Am I truly fishing despite all those things? Uh, You know, that's the million-dollar question. There, I think that we can take that. And we can apply it to our spiritual lives also. I have a story that I thought would, would really make sense. I read this a long time ago and just it stayed in my head and I just, just kind of noted it saying one day we're going to talk about this in church and I want to, want to read this to the church. So here, here goes. Now it came to pass there that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. Defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. You getting the picture here? Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large and beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing and decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large and elaborate and expensive training centers were built Whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those Who don't fish, who are really not fishermen, no matter how much they claim to be. Yet it did not sound, yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he or she never fishes? More plainly stated, is one really following if she isn't fishing? It's time to start casting our nets. Who's the one you're going to go after? Who's your one? Now, with that in mind, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to invite uh, an intern that's been working with us for a while, Brandon Erdley, to come on up. Brandon, come on up and grab a mic. And I'm going to ask Brandon just to pray for this moment and pray that this little parable, this little story would just help maybe penetrate our hearts and drill down deeply. And the truth would, would just be a, a very potent thing for us in this moment. So pray with us.
0: Bow your heads with me please. Dear Father, thank you for this time to uh, focus on prayer and who's our one and thank you for Tony's willingness to uh, share this parable with us. May spirit may this parable drill deep down into our hearts, uh, cement this in our minds, uh, sear this in our brains, Father, that uh, it is important not just to be uh, not just to be passionate about about fishing, not just be passionate about being fishers of men, but Spirit, please turn that passion into action. Father, may we not just be excited about uh, about the gospel, but may we be excited, uh, maybe we be engaged in sharing the gospel, not just excited, but engaged. Father, this is so important, so crucial. We have uh, the truth that you have given to us via your Spirit, and we have the words of life from your Son. Uh, Stir us, stir up our passions into action that we might share that all important truth that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Father. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon, for that. I appreciate uh, appreciate you leading us in that way. So we looked at at uh, at what kind of fisherman I am, right? Now I want to juxtapose that with someone who does take their passion seriously, who does take. The idea of fishing seriously. I invite you, if you have a copy of scriptures, to turn to chap- to Luke chapter five. That's where we're going to be hanging out today and reading a story, uh, hearing a story as recorded by Luke of what happened in Jesus' ministry. and And the title for today is is four uh, the number four. The reality is we don't know if there were four guys here. We don't we don't know that there could have been two. There could have been twenty. We don't know. We know there was a group of people who were so concerned about someone, they came to make a difference. Uh, So read with me, if you will, Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem, uh, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So here we're seeing the, the scene set. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Verse 26 says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. We have seen remarkable things today. This story, I want to do something a little bit different today. I've preached from this text. I've taught on this this happening at least three or four times uh, since the doors have been opened to this church. I don't know that I have anything new to add, uh, so I could rehash things, some old, some past teachings. To, that's always helpful for us to just remind ourselves of, of past truths. I could, I could uh, just you know, come at it from a different angle, per, perhaps, and, and try to come up with some new thoughts here. But rather than re-preaching a message in the past, rather what I thought I'd do is just look at some highlights, some big points in this story, and just simply ask you some questions some of the questions I don't have answers for. And and you will have to, you know, come up with some answers yourself. And it might be that you have a pen near you or you have your phone with you that you just have it ready to type, type some things in. Because it could be that one of these questions or maybe perhaps a couple of these questions are questions that need to stay with you for a while. They need to to percolate in your mind for the next day or two that you just don't be so quick to dismiss them and move on from your day and from your week uh, and you just put this in, a, in the pa- you relegate these questions to your past, to a past sermon and you just set them there. But rather my thought, my hope is that some of these questions would would bother us. Some of these questions would provoke us. Some of these questions would cause us to move because I've come to the conclusion that when, when you need to make change in your life you know, uh, Outside people can tell you all the time you need to make change, and it's never going to happen, right? The only time that change happens is when you internally go, there has to be change. Something, I can't live like this any longer. I, I'm bothered by this. I, I'm discouraged by this, and something has to change in order for life to continue on. No matter how much I would tell you that, you could just sit there, you don't own that message yourself, you just sit there and go, yeah, 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 I know, you're right, you're right, but nothing changes, Right? And so my hope is that through some of these questions, you just start having some self-talk, if you will. You just start, start visiting with yourself about the answers to these questions. So that's, that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. And I would just ask you to attempt to take some notes that if, uh, if you hear something that you go, yeah, that's something I need to follow up on. That's something I need to visit with myself about a little more. Then just write that down. Write that down on a pa- piece of paper that you can take or put that on your phone so you can have that. Okay, so first of all, we see here we're introduced to some men. Now, we don't know uh, who these men are or how many there are. Tradition tells us, tradition says there's a couple different opinions. Some, some traditions say that, that these men represent family members of the paralyzed guy. They were perhaps older brothers and maybe cousins, uh, uncles of this man, and they watched him from the time he was a child and, and, and the struggle he went through and, and the pain he dealt with. And and they just had enough. They had enough, and they were frustrated and saying, we've got to do something, and Jesus could potentially do something. Medical science can't help. Medicine doesn't help. Uh, We can't soldier through this anymore. The stories we hear is that Jesus does incredible works, and Jesus heals people. Let's take him to Jesus. Again, we don't know if that's the case. Uh, we don't know how many. We don't know if they were relatives. Some, some think that, that perhaps these men, that there were four of them, one to represent each corner of this guy's cot. And, uh, and some say that, that, that it was actually, these were best friends. These were boyhood, uh, boyhood childhood friends of this guy. This tradition suggests that, that perhaps... This young man, he was a young man or, you know, middle-aged man, that actually he had the use of his limbs. He had his feet. And what happened was a, a, a wall fell upon him from an accident. A house was being built. A wall comes tumbling down, falls on him and breaks his back. And now he loses the use of his legs and he is relegated to a mat. And these friends of his watched a once vibrant, healthy young man now be relegated to begging on the street. Yeah, just getting a few copper coins every day, just enough to, to keep him alive. But at the end of the day, he still lived out in the open in an alleyway, sleeping in the rain, sleeping in the weather, and uh, living a terrible life. And so his friends want to do something. Uh, others say that, that these people were just strangers, that they came and went from the same location to their work, and they saw the same man laying there begging And seeing him day in and day out, week in and week out, really bothered them. And they knew and heard of Jesus and knew that Jesus could make a difference. And so these strangers come together and they pick this man up. Uh, We don't know. We don't know what caused these people to act. We don't know how they were related. All we do know is that these people were bothered by something enough that they were moved to action. They were bothered by the status quo. They were offended by the situation of this man and his plight that they knew they had to do something and they had to do it quickly. They couldn't sit there and pontificate on it. They couldn't say, you know what, one day we're going to do that because they knew that Jesus was here today, but he would be gone tomorrow. They had to move today. They couldn't say, well, let's just let's form an action committee. Let's form a task force and figure out how we can give proper care and proper, uh, proper nourishment and proper nursing to this man. They, they knew that something had to, be ha- had to happen. They were bothered by the status quo. They were bothered by this situation. A question I just ask myself, and I ask you, does it bother you to know that there are people in your life that are far from Christ, does it bother you? Now, there's some people, I, like I've had this encounter with one person uh, shared with me just recently, said, well, I, I, really, I really don't know anyone that's that's far from Christ. I don't, I, I don't know anyone that's lost. And to them, I, my response, I, I, I was probably more pastoral. I was probably more loving. But in my mind, what I was thinking was, do you live in a cave Do you just have like one friend and only one friend and that's it? Because here's the reality if you live and you work and you do anything outside of the walls of your home, friend, I promise you, you know lost people. Now, whether you choose to see them or not, whether you choose to give them the time of day is a different question. But you know, there are lost people in your lives. There's lost people that work around you. There's lost people that go to school around you. There's lost people that live in your neighborhood. There's probably lost people in your family, if you think about it. And keep in mind, I'm talking about lostness. I'm not talking about church folk. I'm not talking about, well, do they go to church or not? Or are they religious people? I'm not talking about, are they good people or well meaning people? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are far from Christ. They are not disciples. Last week we talked about defining Christianity as maybe a poorer way to define what you feel about Christ. And maybe a better way is to talk about, are you a disciple of Christ? That's what we're talking about. People in your life that they have met Jesus and they put him in a place where they're, they're disciples of his, that they are following his way. They're following his example. They're following his call in their lives. I promise you, you know people that are far from God. Now maybe the, 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 the definition of what is that nature of that relationship, now that could be something to be discussed, but you know folks. And so d- does it bother you? Does it bother you that some of these people that are in your circles of influence, that are in your spheres, that are in your arenas that you operate in, does it bother you to know that they are far from Christ. Does it bother you to know that when that person is diagnosed with a terrible and incurable disease, that if you were diagnosed with that, you would have a hope. You would have a hope that knows that that there is a kingdom beyond this life, that this world is a training ground. You would have a hope to know that you worship the great physician and that one day you will be cured of it, whether this side of eternity or the other side of eternity. It really matters not which, but you will be cured. You would have that hope bubbling from you, but your friend who is far from God, they have no hope in that. You would have the hope if you were given the pink slip. If you're given a pink slip and now all of a sudden your economic security is up, uh, it's up to chance, it's its it's questionable. You would have the hope as a Christ follower to know, you know what, I worship the God who is able to supply prophets with bread and food and meat through ravens. I have a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills according to the scriptures. He shall supply all of my needs. I have a God who can take care of me and is fully sufficient. But that person, if they are given that pink slip, they have no comfort, they have no hope. Does that bother me? Does that bother me? I have a hope in my in my in my life that is a wellspring a wellspring of joy and a wellspring of of grace and mercy that no matter what encounters me surely goodness and mercy shall comfort me. They the the God is a rod and a staff defends me, protects me, cares for me, comforts me. I have this hope deep within me and yet people around me do not have that hope. Does that bother me to some degree? Perhaps another question, if you if you're honest and you say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't, then maybe a question to follow up with is why doesn't it bother me? Why doesn't it bother me? Because here's the reality, friend. If you if you're a Christ follower and you answer that question of, you know what, it doesn't really bother me. Man, you got a broken heart, you got a hard heart, friend. You got some problems. There's some problems deep inside of you, because as a Christ follower, one of the first lessons it seems like the, it seems like that Jesus takes us through is the idea to be to have empathy, to, the idea to look at people the way He looks at people, and to see broken people the way He sees broken people, and to have a desire to interact and to connect. And so if your answer to that question is, does it bother me that someone in my life is far from Jesus? If your answer is, no, it doesn't, then I would next question I would ask you is, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because something is wrong. Something is horribly wrong in your life, friend. That's just the way it is. That's just the truth of it. Nowhere can you find in Scripture a Christian who is living out, a, a Christ follower who is living out their calling in life in which they encounter Brokenness and lostness, and that person responds by going, eh, eh whatever, it's, it's, it's really inconvenient, this is inconvenient. Every time you can see a sign of that playing out in Scripture, that person is wearing the proverbial black hat, friend. They're the bad guy. They're the one that we're not to emulate. They're the one that is incredibly broken. They're the one that's the warning to not become like this because bad things are are waiting for this person at the end. You do not want to be like that person. Well, another question I ask is this, and it's something that we just have to wrestle with. If you're bothered by lostness around you, by the fact that someone in your life or perhaps many people in your life are far from Christ, far from Jesus... Are you bothered enough to be moved to action? Will you do something about it? Will you do something about it? These men, these people that are recording Scripture, they did something about it. They were bothered enough that they went to this guy and they just grabbed his mat. Now, we don't know the reaction that this crippled had. You know, it very well could be this crippled was violently against going to Jesus, I mean, think about this. I've learned uh, in, in understanding homelessness in America that when you see panhandlers, especially in big cities, Chicago, uh, New York, you, you realize that in the panhandling world, there are spaces, there's real estate in New York and Chicago that's passed down from from older generations to younger generations, from father to son, if a, a person is on this corner and it's a, a high-producing corner for people to give money to this panhandler, that they will have within that community, they have an understanding, they have a, a sense of legality that that corner is owned by that panhandler and, and then one day he can transfer it or sell it to someone else sell that corner that he does not have a legal right to but in that world he has a legal right to what am i saying i'm saying this i'm saying there are some spots that people are at that are high yield spots perhaps this beggar perhaps this this person that was an invalid was on a high yield spot and he knew that by being moved from that spot there would be a line of 10 other beggars 10 other invalids right behind him to take that spot perhaps this man's like what are you doing What are you doing? I've waited and waited and waited. I finally got in the perfect location right outside of the temple, right outside of worshipers coming in to worship their God and they're giving me money that they have. And now you're taking me away from it. Why are you doing that? Perhaps that was his reaction. Perhaps his reaction was just like many of our reaction, right before we experience wholeness and health, what do we do? We get scared, don't we? Because we've been in a situation of unhealth. We've been in a, in a lifetime of brokenness and we've made peace with it, haven't we? We've made it comfortable. We, it's comfortable, our brokenness. We understand it. We can, can kind of control it a little bit or at least we can kind of understand it. And, and so the idea of health is kind of scary, isn't it? It's kind of like, I don't know if I'm ready for that because that's the unknown. But perhaps this guy was like, okay, if Jesus could heal me, what does that look like? What does that look like now? I don't know if I'm prepared for that. Perhaps it's even just a, I don't want to be disappointed again. And you know what? I've been to a thousand doctors, and I've, been to, I've, done, I've taken all the secret creams, and I've taken all the potions, and I've had all the people pray for me. And just one more, one more time to be let down, I can't handle it. You know, perhaps, perhaps this guy went kicking and screaming. And he wasn't kicking because he didn't have the use of his legs. And he was screaming, right? And he was upset, and he was mad. And these guys kept on moving. They kept on trudging to where Jesus was. And and what do they find? They find that everyone is there in the community. And people are outside of the building, outside. There's no way they can get in through the door. There's no way one of them could get in, much less all of them with a bed and an invalid on this bed. So what did they do? Did they look at it and go, oh, man? We tried our hardest. Man, we gave it our best shot. Let's go home. Maybe we'll come back on, the, on round two. Maybe the next time Jesus comes through, maybe we'll be one of the first in line. Maybe we can catch him when no one knows he's here sometime. He's just passing through and we could, we could fight him. Maybe then, maybe then, oh, we came up to a, a shut door. We've come up to a wall, so we gave it our best shot. We're done though. No, they didn't do that, did they? When they saw that the door was closed, they got up on the roof and they dug a hole in the roof to get him down. They took extreme action. They took provocative action. They took action that was uncomfortable to them. It made a scene. It disturbed people around them, right? People thought maybe they were crazy for doing it. I guess what I'm asking you today is, Perhaps in your life, you, you, there's a friend in, in your world or a family member or someone in your world that's far from Christ, and maybe you take a, an attempt, you take a stab at it, and a door gets shut, a door is shut right there, and you just go, well, I gave it a try, I gave it a try, you know, come back to it down the road, but not, not meant to happen today, it's done. I guess what I'm asking you is, what kind of holes do you need to make with the people that you love, the people you're concerned about? Perhaps it's not a linear path. Dave was telling me in between, in between services, there was a, a, a person, a chaplain that works for Dave at Victory Mission whose 77-year-old father was far from God, was lost. And, uh, and that this, this chaplain uh, took the time to purchase a couple of Experiencing God, or not Experiencing God, Purpose Driven, Purpose Driven Life books, and just said, Dad, would you do this with me? Would you do this study with me? And in four weeks of working through this together daily, that this dad gives his life and heart to Jesus through that study, through that time commitment, through that experience, that son, that I I applaud that chaplain because in that case he dug a hole. He dug a hole. He didn't just go to dad and say, "Let me give you the, let me give you a fifteen minute conversation about how to come to faith." Let me uh, let me share with you a couple of verses. But he he opened up his life in a pretty significant way for a pretty significant amount of time to talk some deep things and. And something happened, God honored that. What kind of hole do you need to make today? And then another thought, i just end with this. They brought this man to get healed. And Jesus did so much more in his life. They wanted his legs to be healed. Jesus transformed his life by forgiving him of sin. That reminds me, I mean, we talked about this last week. We talked about how we live in a world where our young people are all about a cause. If you're under the age of 50, uh, you, chances are we talk about some kind of cause out there and your your heart rate is going to start start going up. You know, your pulse is going to go up. Maybe it's homeless children. Maybe it's dealing with with women who are abused. Maybe it's about human trafficking. Maybe it's the idea of, that there are people in this world that, that don't have fair access or good access to education, or they don't have access to potable water. Perhaps it's, it's uh, learning to, uh, to, to teach people to read for themselves. Or it's dealing with homelessness. There's causes out there, and all those causes... are are worthy causes for us to invest in. And and that's why we make no apology for having our Going Global Fund. You know, the Going Global Fund is a fund that we give to, and 100% of that money goes out to resource missionaries and resource agencies that are dealing with these issues and more issues. But hear me clearly. All of those issues, super important. I believe the church is meant to address those things. But the greatest issue, The issue that goes deeper than potable water and education and dealing with eradicating just stupid diseases that should have been eradicated 100 years ago, uh, uh, dealing with with tyranny, dealing with... The idea that all people should have justice for themselves. Uh, All of those issues, super big issues, but even greater than that is the idea that every one of us are, are hopelessly broken and lost from the love of God and that we need, every person needs to be exposed to the idea that their sin can be forgiven through the powerful name of Jesus Christ and because of the sacrifice that he committed on a cross. That is the greatest thing. That is the greatest need. That is the greatest message that every person needs i don't care if you're a broken person who doesn't have potable water, doesn't have education, lives on a on a small small you know fifty cents a day, or if you're the wealthiest person in the world living with forty billion dollars to your name, every person needs to know of that their sin can be forgiven and that there is hope in Jesus Christ, and that their life can be turned over to Jesus, and he transformed them from the inside out, and that's exactly what what this man discovered. This man came and and people were hoping that his legs would get fixed. And what did Jesus do? Your sins are forgiven. And I have the ability to forgive your sins because I'm the Messiah. And to show you that I have the ability to forgive your sins, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take your mat up and go home. I'll do both for you. This man's life was transformed. And so a question I ask you today, how has Jesus transformed your life? How's Jesus transformed you? You know that's really the message that you're entrusted to share. You are not entrusted. You know, you, truth be told, many of us we get very nervous about sharing our faith because we think that sharing our faith means that we have to give a theological treatise. We have to give some kind of master's degree level paper to someone to explain all the ontological and and teleological. Uh, uh, understandings of why it is that that Jesus' blood shed on the ground would save us from our sin. How does that, how does that, what's the chemical equation of that process happening? We feel like we have to have all those answers on these questions, these deep subjects. And, and the reality is none of us are prepared for that. And so we think, man, I can't share my faith because because I don't truly, totally understand it either. And here's what God is asking you to share. He's asking you to share the story of how he transformed you. What is the difference that Jesus has made in your life? And honestly, truth be told, there's a lot of Christ followers, and there's probably a lot of people in this room that when I ask you that question now, you just go, I don't know. Start thinking about it then. Start thinking about it and start coming up with an answer of asking the question, how has Jesus transformed you? What difference has he made in your life? And be prepared. Just start there. Start by sharing that with your friends around you and see what happens. How has Jesus transformed you? And then the question I ask you is this. Could Jesus transform your friends and family members' lives around you? Did Jesus transform you? Can he transform people around you? You know, there's people in our lives, there's that uncle that no one talks about, right? We all have them. We all have them. There's there's that cousin who we just don't get along with cuz you know they're going to they're going to whatever your family is politically they're going to be the exact opposite and then they're going to wear that hat they're going to they're going to show up to Thanksgiving wearing the maga hat Right, or they're going to show up to Thanksgiving where you know if, if you're going to, they're going to wear the MAGA hat if you're a whole Democrat family or if you're a conservative family they're going to be the one sharing the, wearing the Bernie bro shirt right there's that cousin in your in your family perhaps you're the cousin right you might be the cousin you might be the cousin right I don't know but but we all have them we all have those family members that that you're just like man they are so far out there we have those friends we have those friends from high school or college where you're like they were so wild. They were so crazy. I can't tell you how many friends I had in Fox High School that just mocked me, just mocked me for daring to wear a Christian t-shirt or just the fact that I did party with them and I, did, I lived differently than they did. They just, they would make fun of me and call me preacher boy and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just just and, and and you know it wasn't bad. It was I, I never got physically threatened. I never was I was never a martyr for, for I just you know my social life was martyred a couple of times is all. Um, but but th- those those kids I'd look at them I'd be like man they will never come to Christ they will never come to Christ never 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 oh what little faith I have what little faith I had back then to see how the power that God could use to transform a person's life. I'm ashamed of myself, of how I limited God's power. My only defense is I was an 18-year-old, 17-year-old punk, right? Didn't know any better. But I just look at those people and I'd be like, man, they are so deep in sin. There is no way they will turn. There's no way they will turn from from their way. And, and i periodically, thanks to Facebook, I'll run into one of them. Or or perhaps I'll run into one of them uh, you know, a dinner or something like that, or one, one of them. You know, occasionally some of them moved down to Springfield. They didn't know it. I run into them, and I discover I, a number of times I've had these people. I start talking to them. I find that that something happened in their lives in college, or something happened in their lives as a young adult, and it just it it just rattled them, and they turned to Jesus. And now I meet this person who just was relent. One guy I remember just relentless to me in high school, and now he's a deacon at a church. And I, I and I had to point it out. I was like you, you, you know, I'm like, you remember all the, you remember how you tortured me? And he's like, yeah, I know. Yeah. I was stupid. I'm like, and I, I remember the Lord got a hold of me. And in that case, when he told me that my response was, I said, well, you know what? I was stupid too, because I never bothered to ask you to come to church with me. I never invited you to be a part of my life. I never bothered to ask you if you wanted to embrace the gospel for yourself, because I just thought that you were beyond it. And I'm so wrong. I was so wrong. You know. The reality is, is, could Jesus transform your friends and your family members' lives? I'll give you the answer to that. It's yes, 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 a thousand times over, yes. I ask and I conclude with this question. I circle back around. The question I ask is, how has Jesus transformed your life? It might be that someone here says, Not, I don't know, I never thought about it. It might be the answer is, he hasn't transformed my life. I've been going to church for years. I just kind of found myself here. Maybe the decision was made for me. Maybe I just you know, took the path of least resistance and bam, here I am. I'm in church. But, but I've never actually owned my faith. I've never actually put, put, put any kind of stakes down in the ground to make this, to cement my faith as my faith. And the reality is my faith isn't real. It's someone else's faith and I'm just here because I have nowhere else to be, you know, but I'm here today. And so I ask this question: Does Jesus need to transform you? Does Jesus need to transform your life? Perhaps. Well, I shared in the first hour about how my dad talked about when he was a when he was a boy. Uh, you know, the Turners love a bargain. So I don't know if my grandparents thought there was a bargain with multiple baptisms. But but my dad my dad's two older sisters were walking an aisle to get baptized. They were walking an aisle because they were saying yes to Jesus in their church. And my my grandfather and grandmother pushed my dad out and said, you're going to, you know, we're going to baptize all three of you at the same time. And so my dad was pushed out and he's just following his big sisters and just, and and he's saying yes to things he doesn't have any clue about. And then a week later he gets dunked in a, in a creek and he had no clue why that was happening. It's just that that's what his parents said he was going to do. And so he lived like that for 60 plus years, right? Before he recognized that he needed to be transformed in his life. And before he said yes to King Jesus, it might be that you are living your life right now because someone else pushed you out in the aisle. Someone else told you to make this decision, but you, were, you never made it for yourself. And I would just say this to you. I would say this, that, that you can know a lot of things about Jesus, but we have to come to a point in our lives where we say, Jesus, I trust and I know that you died on a cross. You you shed your blood, and, and a miracle happened. A miracle happened when you shed your blood. The miracle was that God took all of the sins of all of us and placed them on Jesus. That's something we can't we can't wrap our minds around that. That's a miracle that that God would do that. He put all of our sin on Jesus, and Jesus bore the penalty of our sins when he died on a cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, not only the miracle of resurrection occurred, but another miracle happened that was just as potent, and that was that God looked at Jesus and said, you are innocent of sin. Because you died, you died for sin. I'm declaring you innocent. I am resurrecting you right now. And that happened, and and the miracle here occurs that that now the freedom that Jesus experienced and that being declared innocent for sin, he gives to us as his children. He gives to us and says, you can have the same innocence by just simply saying yes to me. The Bible tells us, if you believe in your heart that Christ died on a cross, died for your sins, and if you confess it with your mouth that he is Lord, he is King, he is the Messiah, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. So we believe this belief, we, we're convinced salvation is about belief, believing in your heart that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead to free us from sin and give us new life in Him, give us, give us the ability to be sons and daughters to His Father, to God. If we believe that in our hearts and then if we confess with our mouth, if we act out on our belief by saying, yes, yes, I'm a Christ follower. Yes, Christ, come into my life. I invite you to my life. Change my life from the inside out. Let me live for you. Speak into me. Take leadership. Take, take the leadership over of my life. If we do that, we will be saved. We will be transformed. I don't know if there's someone in this room that needed to hear that. I don't know if there's someone that's watching online right now that needed to hear that. I don't know if there's someone that's going to be watching three months from now on, on YouTube that needs to hear this. But I would say this. I would say, if you have not experienced God's transforming power in your life, then would you consider saying yes to King Jesus? Believe in your heart that he he died on a cross and rose from the dead to free us from our sins and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And then allow him to transform you. Allow him to change you inside, from the inside out. And let's see what happens. I would invite you to consider taking that in for yourself. Perhaps you're here right now. In a moment, I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing a song. You can you can go grab Pastor John over here, Pastor Dave in the back, or me in the back. If you're online right now, you can talk to Pastor, Pastor Dave uh, via text messaging. You might just say, hey, could you call me or talk to me later and give him your contact information? And he'll reach out to you later on to have... I have a more thorough conversation than what this is right now. What I'm ultimately saying is this, if you're sitting here going, man, this makes sense and I need to take these steps, just grab one of us and let us work through that with you. Let us talk to you about that and maybe do a little more coaching, a little more counseling with you through this process. The point is this, if you're hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you, do something about it. Do something about it. Let's pray right now. Father, we come before you and God, that is my heart. Lord, if you are speaking to someone right now, in asking us to, asking us to let, let you into our lives and, and just allow you to transform us. God, my prayer is that we would be responsive, that we would be so open to that, and we would turn to you quickly. And God, my prayer is for every person here who has experienced transformation in you. Oh, God, give us the heart, give us the passion to see the potential in our friends that need that same transformation. Help us to begin partnering with you to to give a verbal witness when we have opportunity and when you open the doors to people around us. Teach us what that looks like. Show us what that looks like, oh God. Make us people who are passionate for seeing your gospel message go forth from this congregation. These things we pray in your son's powerful name. Amen.
0: Thank you listening to the Northbridge Church podcast. If you'd like more information about Northbridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.